Hello, it's Fourth Estate, your weekly media current affairs panel show for the first week of August. On 2SER Radio and across the community radio network, my name's Jack Fisher, and tonight we're talking about that enduring news hotspot, the Middle East. And if Malcolm Turnbull's got you worried about whether you're overestimating or underestimating the threat of ISIS, don't worry, because we've got The Guardian's Middle East correspondent, Martin Chulov, joining us in the studio. Martin's won an Orwell Journalism Prize for his coverage of the crisis across the Arab world and the rise of the Islamic State. Hi, Martin. Hi, good to be with you. We've also got Lisa Main, producer with the ABC's national reporting team. Lisa's recently returned from a year and a half spent in the ABC's Jerusalem Bureau. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Jack. And Milaz Majani, founder of the One Path Network, which is a Sydney-based Muslim online video channel. Hey, Milaz. Hey, Jack. Nice to be here. Martin and Lisa, I want to start by asking how you choose to situate yourself when covering the Middle East. Martin, you're based in Beirut in Lebanon. How do you make sure that you're well-placed to cover news events that are unfolding in every corner? simply a, a case of making a case to to the news desk about where we need to be and the formula for us is to to let human voices drive the story um, to establish more or less what the where the truth lies so it's very important for us to to report from from the front lines or from the scene so uh, we will go wherever we need to within reason uh, in order to give uh, to, to empower the powerless or to to, to give these human voices which speak to a much broader narrative. So, for example, uh, when things kicked off in, in Iraq mid-last year, it was very easy to, to go straight to Baghdad. The things moved on to Erbil, the Sinjar Mountains. We did that as well. But we've also done as much as we can to, to travel into Syria to tell one of the more important stories of our time. Uh, this, it's, it's very difficult travelling. Uh, it's, 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 it's dangerous, but it's, it's something that we need to do because the voices of the Syrian people need to be heard. And in Beirut, do you feel like you're well-placed to cover things, whether they're happening in Egypt or perhaps on the other side of you in Syria, in Aleppo? We, more often than not, will travel to where we need to be rather than report remotely. We will if we have to, and we, we will do so with the benefit of having that experience of so many trips in, into the country. We have a, a correspondent who is based in Cairo who will cover Egyptian affairs. So I've been focusing mainly for the last couple of years on Iraq, Syria, and occasionally Lebanon. So again, it comes back to we will report remotely if we have to, but I think the real value add for us is a international organisation remains more or less well-resourced is, is to go where we need to be. Lisa, what's been your experience based in Jerusalem? I think you've been there well, through the Gaza war last year and you've also closely followed the Peter Gresta situation which kept so many Australians watching last year. How well-placed do you feel in that spot? Yeah, the Middle East is quite a big place and incredibly diverse. That's the first thing that you really get a sense of when you arrive there and start to do a little bit of travelling of just how diverse that region is. I think certainly in an ideal world, you want correspondents in at least three or four of the countries within the Middle East. Now, not every organisation can afford that. There are limits on resources. Um, And so, you know, you need to, if you are going to be able to cover, say, you know, the Gaza conflict well, um, you need to have correspondents who have been there and who understand the local politic quite well and have good contacts on the ground who, again, can bring the broader discussion and narrative and context that's required to a really fast-moving situation. So um, the ABC now has a bureau in Jerusalem as well as we've just moved to Beirut. Um, It's tricky moving from Jerusalem out to Egypt. We also had an office in Amman which helped kind of facilitate that. 
Um, but I think you certainly, as a journalist, I think what Martin said is true and that was my biggest kind of takeout was if you're not there, you're not there. You know, seeing things with your own eyes and you're within your own kind of context and knowing the kind of news beat back at home, um, that's priceless. So I think if you, you know, are a correspondent and a kind of have one correspondent based in the Middle East trying to cover the entire Middle East, you're going to be really compromised. So once you are there, you need to be in a couple of places, ideally, because the region's so diverse, the politics are so different and so detailed in each spot, and you need a pretty good travel budget and you need access to really good fixes on the ground, people who are very um, kind of clued in locally. Malaz, how does it look back here in Australia to you? Do you feel like the hotspots that deserve the attention are getting it? I think the situation for us here in Australia is quite um, different. I mean, myself being born in Damascus in the Middle East um, gives me a bit of a different perspective to those who are actually doing the reporting over there. But sometimes it's quite difficult for people in Australia to, to sort of understand the complexity of, of the issues that are happening there. And uh, maybe it's to do with the distance, how far we are or how really involved um, you know we, we are in terms of reporting on, on s- circumstances and stories that are happening in the Middle East. Um, but s- sometimes the media does tend to sort of shift focus on certain issues and leave out other issues as well, which could be quite confusing to audiences back here in Australia. So it's quite important for um, you know for for journalists that are uh, sort of you know corresponding from it at least that they cover stories comprehensively and that they sort of give um, Australians who are on the other side of the world a uh, sort of a much more broader perspective on on the um, on on the incidents and and the things that are happening on the other side of the world. I guess the big thing with Syria is often they can't get to the places; it's simply not possible. Do you feel like Australian news consumers actually realise that maybe there's an iceberg beneath that tip that we see? I think sometimes it's not covered. I mean, there's there's a lot of um, focus that you find on front pages, on on you know on the things that ISIS are doing, for example. And then there's a lot of stuff that's between the lines and behind the scenes that doesn't sort of get covered, and people don't see the the entire story. Not saying that ISIS what what ISIS is doing is is acceptable by any by any means, but at the same time, there's a lot more complexities that should be um, put out there, and people Australians should know about it. And a very simple example is, I mean, every single time someone from ISIS picks up a knife, it's a front page story. But Bashar al-Assad has been dropping barrel bombs, um, you know, on villages continuously for the last four years. And people don't know what is, what is happening, how many people are getting killed, how many people are getting injured by these uh, sort of events that he's uh, committing, these murders that he's committing. So let's go to that, Martin. The coverage from Syria seems to have changed a lot since 2012. In 2012, there seemed to be developments constantly, and it really felt like things were moving towards a situation where perhaps the regime might be overthrown. Now it just feels like what word is getting out of Syria has become more and more the same. How do you feel about where the coverage on Syria has gone? Well, I think there's uh, several reasons for it. One of them is an audience fatigue. Um, so many years now of relentless death and misery, it has made it very difficult to, to find a point of difference. One of the, the benefits of the digital media age is unlike the old days of print, you more or less know who's reading you, how long they're spending reading the story, um, where they're reading from. So you can track almost every story that's, that's posted on our website and see what, what, what's getting traction and what isn't. And by mid-2013, people were tuning out of refugee stories. And to put that into perspective, the, the, the refugee crisis in Syria is unlike anything anywhere in the world since the Second World War. It's enormous in scale with, with significant 
socioeconomic and geopolitical implications. It's probably the biggest crisis in the world today, and it will be for years to come. But people aren't interested. And what do you do uh, as, as, a, as, a, as an editor commissioning valuable resources to go and cover something like that? We, we believe that we need to continue to cover it because it matters. But by the same token, uh, we need to find new and innovative ways of telling an ever more complex and ever more sad story. Do you feel like audiences want it to be going somewhere? They want to feel like something's going to happen soon and in Syria there's just not that sense anymore? Yeah, I think I think that's a factor too. Um, the, the only news is bad news. It will not get better at any point soon. And as I said, people do tend to tune out when there is no real upside. And I guess the onus is on people like myself and, and my colleagues to to continue to try and find ways to engage uh, readers or, or listeners or viewers or whoever because the story of Syria and the story of the Middle East really does matter. Last year here on Fourth Estate, we heard from a remarkable young Australian journalist, Sophie Cousins, who crowdfunded a plane ticket to Beirut and has since reported on Syria, putting herself in some pretty hairy situations and all as a freelancer. What are your views on the use of freelancers in Syria and all of the issues of liability that go with it? It's been a vexed issue uh, for a couple of years now, uh, but I, I do think... Uh, that uh, since about early 2013, the risk-reward equation hasn't worked out in the favour of, 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 uh, of freelance reporters who want to cover Syria on their own wits. It's not a place to cut your teeth. It's, a, it's an incredibly difficult and dangerous part of the world. And us as an organisation, The Guardian, uh, have made a decision uh, not to use... Uh, freelance reporters who get themselves to the scene, say in Aleppo or, or Homs, because uh, we, we don't want to be seen to be encouraging uh, that sort of conduct because it is so dangerous. Let's put that into perspective. Uh, there, there were 27 uh, reporters, most of them freelance reporters, who were kidnapped in Syria between 2012 and uh, and then the end of 2013. Three weeks ago, three Spanish freelancers were, were kidnapped in Aleppo. Uh, a Japanese freelancer disappeared the week afterwards. Um, it, it remains a place where, if you if you are going to operate, you do need institutional support. Um, now, that said, it, it's it's a difficult situation to be in to be denying the rights of people to be published. But we do think that there is a strong um, public safety obligation just to ensure that those who go there are trained and resourced. Lisa, another place that's terribly dangerous to be a journalist is the Gaza Strip. You were talking a bit before about the use of fixes. Would you care to weigh in on this issue of freelancers? Yeah, I agree with Martin on this one. I mean, it has been an incredibly vexed issue. And I would, you know, as a journalist and understanding how few opportunities there are as young journalists, you don't want to discourage anybody from, you know, the kind of great trade that journalism is. But i you know, my experience, and this was actually, I saw some freelancers who were going into Gaza for the first time. And one was a freelance photographer, the other one was a writer. And they were women in their 20s. And they didn't yet have flat jackets. And they didn't kind of understand or have any local fixes with them to help kind of read, you know, what the Israeli strategy would be of where they were dropping bombs. And I was really concerned for those girls, you know, walking in through that huge gate into Gaza. And I think that if you, it's not a place to cut your teeth and institutions like the ABC, they do need, they carry a bit of responsibility in this because it's, it's a lot cheaper to take content from freelancers who take all of the risk. Um, and I think, you know, that's, 
I, I'm happy to hear the Guardian and I know that um, AFP have made a similar decision where they're not taking material from freelancers inside places like Syria. But I think there are other dangerous hotspots as well that probably should be added to that list. And it's, you know, if we want quality journalism, then, you know, as societies, we need to have the institutions that can train people and support them properly, like we do our military when we send them into combat zones. So, um, yeah. So does that require some particularly tough editorial decisions? For instance, a freelancer pitches something, it's really great, nobody else has got it, but you have to stick to some overriding moral principle? I think when the policy is in place, you do stick to it. Um, the exceptions that you would make are, for example, Erbil in northern Iraq. If, if it's, it's not a particularly dangerous place in which to operate. Um, you, you can more or less... Uh, find some some stories which are going to add value there. So in in terms of the rest of Iraq, Arab Iraq and Syria, we're not going to take freelance copy. Um, It doesn't mean we we, we discourage young journalists from from wanting opportunities, but those environments are just too safe to even consider um, saying to any reporter who's made it there in their their own wits that we'll take what you have. So as you both point out, neither Syria nor Palestine, good places to cut your teeth. What are some of the common sense lessons you've learned that enable you to go to dangerous places? Well, I've had a long time in the region now. It's 10 years. And um, I think that has given me uh, somewhat of an innate sense of of, uh, what can be managed and what can't. It's very important to understand the Middle East on its own terms. Uh, There are reasons for it being in the state that it's in, and they're not too disconnected from centuries of, of, of empire, occupation, invasion and whatever. But once you get beyond that, knowing the societies, knowing the culture, knowing uh, the values that underpin them and, and respecting them and working to them really do help you. And um, I mean, it, it's, it's a complex, dynamic, volatile place, but you, you can use that to your advantage. For example, uh, there have been times in, in northern Syria where it, it's instinctively it's just been impossible to cross the border and go there. But you know that if you wait a while and the mood changes and you, and you use the appropriate support, you, you do your vetting properly and you go with people that you've trusted for a long time, journeys are manageable with a relatively low risk. So being able to read that is innate and it does take a long time. And I think that's the value of having institutional backing. Uh, where you, you know you, you you have a budget, you have time, um, and they do put a premium on experience. Well, as I want to go to the topic of ISIS, has the media done enough to inform on the origins of ISIS? So when they took Mosul last year, did many audiences just accept that ISIS had appeared from a vacuum? I think that um, there's a many many unanswered questions when it comes to the issue of ISIS. Um, there's been a lot of focus on the horrors that they commit. But there's a lot of um, unanswered questions in, in regards to how they budget themselves, their origin, the the caliph, where he came from, his history, all that sort of stuff that sort of doesn't get reported. And for some reason, people have just um, been taken away by the boogeyman, the scary monster of ISIS. But they've sort of, um, you know, in a way, um, sort of just happen to sort of go, let, let go of, of important details that sort of can, can make someone complete the story so that the story is quite holistic and we understand exactly what, what's, what's happening. So there's, a, there's many, many unanswered questions when it comes to ISIS. And I think it's quite important that um, media reports do, do cover these, these minor details. So Martin, on the origins of ISIS, do you feel like the brevity of news media is limiting on your capacity to educate people around those origins? I think I'm in a 
relatively fortunate position uh, where I'm expected to give the perspective and context that Malaz talks about, um, and we're not captive to a news cycle. So I have spent a lot of time um, doing, or doing as best as I can to get to the bottom of this organisation, where it came from, why it emerged, and how it emerged. And we have put a lot of time and resources into, into actually publishing that or, or explaining that as best as we can. So um, ag again, I, I think it just comes down to, for in, in my perspective, being able to work for an organisation that values that and not only values it, expects it. So Malcolm Turnbull recently told us not to overestimate the threat of ISIS, also told us not to underestimate it either. Which are we more at risk of doing? See, I, I cover it from the Middle East, uh, where the threat is real and the threat is existential to the post-Ottoman order. Um, so I don't think uh, the, the risk that ISIS could uh, lead to the crumbling of the, of the nation-states of Iraq and Syria in particular... And, uh, and Lebanon likely as well. I don't think that's overstated. I think where Malcolm Turnbull was right was to say that the homeland, the threat to the homeland here uh, should not be uh, amped up and that we should not play into ISIS's hands by uh, reflecting the fears that they're doing as best as they can to impose on, the, on our community and others. I think we need to bear in mind that those who have left Australia to go and join ISIS have by and large not intended to return with, uh, with, with rare exceptions. And the attacks that, that we've had here have been self-starters and uh, you know, not directed functionally in any way from, from, us, from ISIS strongholds. So I think there is a threat. It remains over the horizon, a long way over the horizon, and we should not buy into this organisation's narrative by uh, ramping up the fears too high. That's an interesting one because ISIS, as we know, produce material, propaganda, and in a broadcast environment, we often want to reproduce that to have something to work with. Lisa, how do we make sensible decisions around that? Mm. Look, it's something that we grapple with on a daily basis. Certainly my team does. Um, one example that might be instructive is we came across an ISIS um, how-to guide, very sophisticated how-to guide of how to survive in the West as an ISIS member. And it was very instructive. It gave very clear directions. And we kind of had a really robust discussion around at what point by reporting on this are we giving it promotion and air? Um, and, you know, what are the arguments for not reporting on it? So we, you know, that was a kind of a good, I'd say a good 30-minute discussion on, you know, the pros and cons each way. So that discussion in editorial teams is happening, certainly in my team. Um, I think where we do report is when there is something new in it, something instructive um, and something that's certainly in the public interest. So, for example, one of the stories that we did run with were allegations that there was a local charity here um, that was accused of fundraising for the group and had strong links up in Tripoli and members had been arrested. So we went, okay, that's new because we haven't looked at the kind of if there's fundraising structures in Australia and if they're kind of masquerading as charities. So that's the kind of discussion we have. I think it's it's difficult in a kind of hyper-politicised environment. You know, you certainly see fear is a very powerful tool for politicians to 
petals. So you have to be careful that just in covering the kind of the political reaction to ISIS, you're not also kind of contributing to the to the group as you know giving it a lot of credence and credibility that it's you know so powerful that it's terrifying Australian politicians. So it's look, I think it's a really it's a it's a difficult area. It's one where there's a lot of long, hard editorial debates going on in my organisation about how we do it properly. Malaz, I want to ask you about what I I suppose I consider to be a couple of media-isms, one being this term moderate Muslims, which we constantly hear bandied around, the other being the tendency for media to prompt Muslim leaders to respond to acts of extremist violence by condemning, denouncing, distancing themselves. What do you make of those tendencies in the media? The um, the word moderate Muslim for a practicing Muslim should be the moderation of our beloved Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who came down with the complete message. So any moderation should be referenced back to his teachings. And it, it's uh, I find this particular word troubling because it instantly categorizes people as uh, you know as good or bad. And moderation is something that's um, that you know that's relative as well. So that's something that's very important to be considered as well. So the moment that you call a particular person a moderate, that means you're directly sort of saying that the others are could be extreme um, you know in, in the way they, they think or the way they sort of act upon the teachings of Islam so so moderation is something that should be referenced back to the teachings of Islam not to the way that um, certain media outlets call a particular person or a particular figurehead um, or a particular group moderate or extreme so I think that's that's quite important to sort of clarify and the other thing is when it comes to the apologetics um, I mean if someone commits uh, you know an act that's a criminal act then you know the burdens on them and the onus is on them to you know to to sort out their problems and to to, to get rectification on their issues I don't think that it's um, the onus goes back onto the Muslim community and this is something that we've seen uh, happen over and over and over again where the entire community is supposed to sort of you know take ownership of a particular member who's um, who could be sort of you know um, troubled or could be um, you know a criminal and there are criminals amongst every single community. However, when it comes to Muslims in specifically, for some reason, um, there's always an onus to expect a particular figurehead to come out and say uh, sorry and distance themselves from a particular person. So this is something that sort of uh, that's that's sort of uh, been done over and over again, and it shouldn't be the case really. What do you, what sort of assumption do you think is made behind that tendency to call someone to condemn or call someone to distance themselves or denounce something? Um, look, I think it's it's um, the way that it's done. It um, it makes an assumption that Islam is like this, and I think this is quite incorrect. Um, Islam, uh, you know, a system is uh, it's a good system. Islam is a perfect system for us, to, you know, to to practice our faith. But if you misinterpret or if you do something wrong, this should not have a reflection on the system itself. It's got a reflection on the person that's implementing, um, you know, their understanding or their interpretation of the faith. So the assumption should never go back to the faith. Um, No one's perfect. Everyone commits mistakes. Everyone has, you know, does uh, mirrors and mistakes in their life. But to have the burden or the onus on the entire community is something that's quite problematic. I think in the case of ISIS, its great danger is that... To, to many of those who are who are deciding to follow it, they're doing so not because they adhere to its virulent ideology, but because it's presenting itself as a political vehicle that can advance the interest of the Sunnis of Iraq and Syria at a time where a political process has failed them abysmally for the last 12 years, not just in Iraq since the invasion of 
uh, the U.S. invasion, which ousted Saddam Hussein and empowered the Shias, empowered Iran, but also in Lebanon in 2005, where the allegation is that uh, Iranian-backed Hezbollah killed the the the, uh, the patron of uh, the Sunnis of the Levant, Rafiq Hariri, and any failure to meaningfully support the Syrian opposition, which is majority Sunni. So that narrative is that we have been disenfranchised, and ISIS plays into that, saying that that Iran is taking over the region, the Shias are here to stay, and we're here to protect your dignity. And that is a, is a powerful message to people who, as I say, have been disserved by a political process which has disenfranchised them for a decade plus. And people who identify with this message find it powerful. And that, uh, that is a, a way that uh, the self-starters that I spoke about earlier uh, can actually start to, to radicalise. So, Malaz, you're at the helm of a news network based here in Sydney called OnePath. You're a Muslim video news channel, and you've established it very recently with $1 million in backing to set up your studios. Social media has obviously opened the channel for you guys to provide, I suppose, an alternative voice. Are the barriers to entry in media really down, as we often hear, or has there actually been quite a large investment on your part to set up one path? Absolutely. Well, the entire industry is heading into a different direction at the moment where you've got things like citizen journalism um, sort of contributing to a lot of the uh, the stories that are run, um, social media, things like um, you know, like um, Twitter and Facebook sometimes are the base of the story, which is unfortunate, but the reality is that the, the spread of, of social media has allowed people to, to put out their thoughts, to put out stories, and for a lot more of an interconnected world. Um, in terms of um, lowering the barriers um, of entry, I think it, it can assist and help people put their sort of thoughts and ideas forward. However, if you haven't got the structure, if you haven't got the audiences there, then you lack the consistency. And this is why we've established a, a studio, a production studio, where we're able to actually have that consistent um, you know, stories being run and productions being done run, as, as opposed to the little sort of um, bedroom t- style of, or mobile style of, um, of journalism, which can work in some cases, but it lacks the consistency, I think. So can you tell me how you've funded your network, how you've brought those backers on board with your idea? Sure. So the Muslim community in Australia has always wanted, um, you know, a, um, there's a lot of focus always on Muslims in Australia for some reason. We happen to be good for ratings and things like that. So whenever there's a story, um, we're, all, we're, we're spoken about quite a lot in, in the media. And the community in Australia has always wanted, um, you know, a platform where they're able to represent themselves and, and put their side of the story forward. And uh, when the idea came up, we thought, let's, um, you know, let's get behind this particular idea and ask the community to donate money to to build the the studio. And the community was very generous in in allowing us to build this particular platform. Um, and we've we've uh, we're still in a soft launch at the moment, but we've done quite well in terms of getting the um, you know the the place set up, the cameras, the control room, um, everything that permits us to actually um, record and film and produce content that's relevant to Muslims in Australia. You do have one interview which I found very interesting when I first watched it. You're interviewing the Australian Federal Police Commander for Counterterrorism and you're basically grilling him on whether the Australian response to foreign fighters would be applied uniformly to Australians who, for instance, went to fight with the Kurds against IS. It's not the sort of grilling we usually get to see on many mainstream media channels in Australia. What's the different angle that you're bringing to news? Well, given that there is a lot of focus on the Muslim community here in Australia in the media, um, at the moment, it's important that we uh, we have a, a level playing field. So if there are laws, the laws should apply on everyone. Um, we've seen the instance of Matthew Gardner, there's George Hamis, and there's recently even Reese Hardings, who was labelled a hero in, um, in, in articles and in, in, in the mainstream media uh, because he was fighting against ISIS, although he broke the foreign incursion law, which is quite problematic. Um, so there is... 
double standards at the moment that we are seeing and the fact that we're able to bring in people like Commander um, Brian McDonald for him to say that no, the law applies to everyone is quite important and reassuring for the community. Martin, some Australians have gone over to Syria to fight against ISIS, as you'll know. The Australian media, when they frame that, it's often kind of like we're backing you guys. Is that justified? Well, ISIS is a prescribed terror organisation. It's uh, a declared enemy of the state. Um, the the YPG, the PYD, and the, the PKK and the various other Kurdish groups that are that are fighting ISIS are, uh, are not by Australia. Um, but I, I, I do agree uh, with what Malaz says that, I mean, at, at face value, it's a prima facie breach of the Foreign Incursions Act to, to head over there and to, to take up arms against anybody. And I do think in the case of Matthew Gardner coming back, even, even if you accept that uh, he was fighting a declared enemy, and perhaps we, we, and we should qualify that by saying, I don't actually know what he was doing there. We, we tried to find out, couldn't find it. But if you, if you did, do accept that, then um, it, it's difficult to reconcile how he could be, uh, how he could be questioned and freed within, within 24 hours. But I guess that's a, an issue that I'm not as across as, as, as issues in the region, so I should probably best stick to them. That's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Thank you so much to our guests, Martin Chulov, Lisa Main and Malaz Majani. Don't forget you can now subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast via iTunes and your favourite podcasting app. You can also find us on Twitter, SoundCloud and Facebook and, of course, at 2SER.com. My name's Jack Fisher and you can catch us at the same time next week. Until then, thanks for listening. Listener.